Amen. Harvest, you may have a seat. If you came in the church doors cold this morning, that time of worship should have warmed you up. Harvest, it's good to be here. Welcome. Welcome, even though it is cold, welcome. Glad everyone's here this morning. Glad to be worshiping with you. Glad to be sharing from God's word this morning. You know, you may remember when we began the study of Esther nine weeks ago, I told you King Ahasuerus desired to conquer Greece. And that was possibly one of the reasons why he showed off all his wealth in chapter one, if you remember He was effectively saying, I have the resources for this campaign. You know, history tells us that Ahasuerus did go to Greece. He fought against the Greeks, and he actually won many battles. And at first, he drove them back, conquering several of their cities. However, he eventually lost the war at the Battle of Salamis. So would we call that a victory? Think about that word, victory. What does that look like in human contexts? Countries go to war, armies conquer or are defeated, lands are taken, new rulers are put into place, but for how long? Is there any lasting victory among human nations? What is real victory? What is lasting victory? What is true victory? We close our study of Esther this morning. And I want to focus on that idea of victory specifically when God is victorious. When God is victorious. What happens when God is victorious? We've reached the end of our study And for me, it's been a really good study, and I hope it's been for you as well. We've learned from the book of Esther that even though he isn't even mentioned, he is deeply at work. He has orchestrated all the events of this book. He has woven the fabric of human lives and events in such a way that the outcome is fascinating. The events of Esther are a result of intimate divine providence. It wasn't by chance. And it surely wasn't by any plans of man. Well, let's see how our study ends. If you haven't already, please join me in Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of all the provinces and satraps and governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. 
For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshadantha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Aradatha and Parmashta and Arasai and Aradai and Vaisitha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. Your first point from our text this morning is this. When God is victorious, his people find rest. When God is victorious, his people find rest. Now, you may remember that Haman's edict was set for the 13th day of the month of Adar. He set that date after casting lots in chapter 3, trying to determine from the gods when would the right time be to carry out his plan. And as we saw last week, Mordecai responded by setting his edict for the very same day. Civil war was legalized on the 13th day of the month of Adar. The Jews and their enemies fought all throughout the kingdom. And as you see from verse 1, the Jews defeated their enemies. God was victorious. Now it's interesting, in verse 2, We're told that the satraps and governors of Persia sided with the Jews. They helped the Jews in this battle. Why? Out of fear. In fact, the verse verse 2 also says that fear had taken everyone in the kingdom. I wonder, where did that fear come from? The Bible doesn't tell us. Perhaps, and I think so, that the fear was divine. But the fear fell specifically on the governors and the satraps because they knew who was second in command. Mordecai being second in command, he had a lot of power, he had a lot of persuasion, and out of fear of Mordecai, the Jews were helped by the the officials. So with that in your mind, think just for a moment, what would have been the outcome if Haman had remained second in command? It would have been devastating but God was victorious. The Jews fought and destroyed their enemies. And verse five tells us they did as they pleased. That means they gave full vent to their desire to destroy those opposing them. They didn't hold back at all. They gave full vent to their desire to destroy those who opposed them. They were allowed by law to defend themselves and they did exactly that. And we're told in Susa, the citadel, the capital, 500 men were killed and we're told that the sons of Hamadatha were also killed. Don't ask me to name them again. Just trust me. <laughs> now, this tells us that the fact that the sons of Hamadatha were killed tells us that the sons of Hamadatha were a part of those who went against the Jews, which then highly suggests that they were along with their father's plan to try to annihilate them. Now, it's interesting because this points to something that should have happened in 1 Samuel 15. This is what should have happened to King Agag. We've talked about this, how it's possible, it's not confirmed, but it's possible that Haman was a descendant of Agag. And if that's true, 
then what happened here in Esther chapter 9 is a fulfillment of the prophecy of God in Exodus 17, 14, when God said that he will wipe away the Amalekites. So if Haman, and again, it's not confirmed, but if he was a descendant of Agag, then here we have the fulfillment of that prophecy. Esther, in other words, did what Saul, King Saul, had failed to do. We're also told here, you probably saw that at the end of the verse, verse 10, that the Jews laid no hands on the plunder. We're actually told that a total of three times throughout chapter 9, and that's interesting because legally, they were allowed to. Legally, they were allowed to take the plunder. Mordecai's edict from last week, chapter 8, reads like this. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Legally, they were allowed to do that. So why didn't they plunder the goods? Why didn't they take advantage of that? Well, we're not completely sure. There have been some guesses to this. The Jews may have refused to plunder the goods as a way of honoring what God had told King Saul to do to Amalek. It could be that the Jews recognized the defeat of Amalek here, the defeat of Agag, and as a way of honoring God, they refused to touch the goods because in 1 Samuel, God told Saul to utterly destroy Amalek, to devote everything to the destruction, including the goods, the livestock, and everything they had, put it all to destruction, and Saul failed to do that. So it could be as a way of honoring that, the Jews decided not to plunder the goods. That's one possibility. Another possibility, it's been suggested that the Jews did not plunder the goods as a way of publicly stating that they fought solely for their own preservation, not for material gain. Either way, as we read that, you sense there is something honorable about leaving the plunder. Whatever the reason, they left it. Look at verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is, your further, what is further your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So you can see this. The king, getting reports, gets this report. He learns that 500 men of the citadel and Haman's sons have been killed. And note the king's response. He says, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, there's some debate over what does he mean by that? What was his motivation in saying that? Was he angry that hundreds of his subjects had been killed? Was he delighted that the Jews, that the battle was in favor of the Jews? We're not quite sure. 
personally, and I could be wrong, I tend to think he's delighted because of what happens next. Look at the rest of that. It'd be verse 12. He says, what have this been done in the rest of the king's provinces? And then he says to Esther, now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? He's asking her again, what else do you want? Almost like he's inviting something else to happen. So it almost seems like he's favorable here, but who knows? Look at Esther's request, though. This is interesting. Verse 13. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Gruesome. What is she doing? Well, she's requesting a second day of fighting, specifically for Susa, the capital, but why? Why would they need a second day of fighting? Well, we don't know. We don't know exactly why she's suggesting that, and you want to know something? I hate to say that because I feel like I have said we don't know a lot through this, through this whole study because the truth is we don't know. There's a lot of things that we cannot say absolutely sure about the book of Esther, the events that happened, why people did what they did. I wish I could give you more definitive information. I wish I could get more of it because I have questions. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why did this person do this? It's not told to us. Part of the reason is that we're we're not given the motivation of the person from the scripture, but another part is that we didn't grow up in 5th century B.C. I didn't. We're separated by 2,500 years of history, not to mention culture and language. Think about this. Let's say you sat down this afternoon and you wrote a letter. And within that letter, you talked about some of the things that happened with this past week's state elections. And then 2,000 years from now, they're digging through the rubbles of your home and somebody finds that letter and they read it the likelihood is they would have no idea what you're talking about. Same idea. The original readers of the book of Esther would probably have understood things a lot better than we would have. We don't know why Esther suggested a second day of fighting, but there have been some suggestions, and I'll I'll give those to you. One suggestion is this. As Esther has grown into the role of being queen, the power has gone to her head. Some have suggested that she's showing the darker side of what power can do. Some have suggested she has grown in this role so much. You remember she started as this compliant girl and grew to to risking her life and then a queen who was writing edicts and making decisions and has grown all the way to this point where now she's had a taste of the power. She knows what she's capable of. Possible. You may recall that at the start of our series... I told you that Esther could have been her nickname given to her by the people of Persia. Esther sounds a lot like the the name Ishtar, which is the Persian Persian goddess of love and war. And one of the things the author of the book might be doing is pointing out that Esther embodies both of those ideas, love and her relationship to Ahasuerus, and war because of her apparent vindictive behavior toward the enemy of the Jews. So again... It's conjecture. That's a possibility. It could also be a possibility that there was just simply a bigger threat in the capital than we knew about, 
And Esther knew about it, so she requested a second day of fighting to completely destroy the enemies. Let's just be done with this. We're just not sure. And another thing, for the contemporary reader, it's a morbid thing to talk about hanging or impaling human bodies. Why would she want that done? Well, in our ears, that's morbid. But honestly, that was very common in ancient warfare. It was very common to display publicly the bodies of those uh, fallen, the enemies that were fallen. It was a way of further humiliating them. So that's what happened in Susa. That's what happened in the citadel. What happened in the other provinces? Join me in verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So all over the kingdom of Persia, the enemy of the Jew, enemies of the Jews have fallen. 75,000 were told. God was victorious. God protected his people. Now we might think that God protecting his people in this way is bloody and vicious. But friends, it was necessary. It was necessary to preserve the people of Israel. God kept his people safe and by extension fulfilled his promise that a Messiah would come through the Jewish nation. We've said it. I'll say it again. God's plans cannot be thwarted. Now, do you see that word relief in verse 16? Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies. That word relief in verse 16, it means rest. When God is victorious, his people find rest. And that's part of what God does when God destroys enemies. He leads his people to rest. In Joshua 21, after the conquest, Joshua 21, 44, speaking of the nation of Israel, reads like this, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Part of God's plan for Israel was to bring them rest from their enemies. Rest in our passage in Esther is the idea of providing consolation. It's it's comfort to someone who's experienced suffering. In our passage, God is granting rest to the Jews from the suffering they received from their enemies. Now, most of us today, we don't face enemies like the Jews did in Esther's day. But still, we do feel the effects of the enemy's attack. Throughout this study, we've talked a lot about Satan. We've talked a lot about his attacks. And there are times in this life that God gives us rest. There are times from this life when we just feel like things are going well, when when the fighting of temptation doesn't seem that strong, 
when, when discouragement seems at bay. There are times we experience that. God gives us rest from Satan's attacks. But we have to admit that rest is brief because we live in a fallen world and because God does allow Satan to do his work for now. It won't always be this way. A day is coming when Christ will return and he will bring true rest, full rest, lasting rest to his children. Lord, hasten such a day. But you know, there's another way that we can receive this rest. There's another enemy that you and I face constantly. And that enemy is ourselves. We are often our worst enemy. You know, in our, in our house, as you walk through the hallway into the family room, there's a decorative cross on the wall and the word rest is painted in the center along with the reference Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The idea of rest there is relief from toil. When God has victory, there is rest. When God has victory in our lives, there is rest. It was true. When God had victory, it was true in the Old Testament times during ancient warfare, God provided rest. But it's also true today. It may be different, but it's still true today. God wants to grant you rest from your toil. What's our toil? In Matthew 11, Jesus was speaking of those carrying the burdens of trying to save themselves by keeping the law. And it was a burden. It was wearisome, but it was also unnecessary, and ultimately, it was ineffective. We can often be our worst enemy. Too often in our day, we fail to live in the freedom of the gospel. You know, instead, we try to be our own savior. We forget that God's already won the victory, and we're still trying to earn his favor. What I'm speaking about here is the issue of motive. Why do we do some of the things that we do? Why do we come to church? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we strive to be honest? Why do we want to be friendly? Why do we want to be a good person? These things aren't bad. In fact, they're things we're supposed to be doing. But you see, where we get mixed up here, where we, we, where we turn it into toil, is in the issue of motivation. Am I living for Christ as an outflow of my salvation or am I striving for righteousness because deep in my heart I still feel like I have to earn God's favor? You know, if we took a careful look at ourselves, I think that many times we'd have to admit the latter. Friends, let me say this. You can't earn God's favor. If you're not a child of God, you might be striving to earn God's favor or striving to be acceptable by your good works. If you are a child of God, a believer in Jesus Christ, you might be under the impression that you have to do good to please him. But friends, if you've surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ, then you are wrapped in his favor. 
He delights in you. There is no need to work so hard to please him. You already please him. He's won the victory over sin. He's won it. It's done. Rest in that truth. Now, I'm not saying that we don't strive for righteousness. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. Of course we strive for righteousness, but the motivation should not be to gain God's favor. The motivation should be, I strive for righteousness as an outflow of the work that he's already done in my heart. Jesus did it all, which is why he said, it is finished. When we work so hard to do good, when we try to make ourselves look good or make ourselves look good to others or make ourselves look good to ourselves or even try to make ourselves look good to God, we fail to live in the victory that Christ has already secured. That is toil, motivated by a desire to do it in our own strength. Tim Keller writes this, he has lived the life you should have lived. He has died the death you should have died. If you rely on Jesus' finished work, you know that God is satisfied with you. You can be satisfied with life. Rest in God's victory in your life. When God is victorious, his people find rest. Point two, when God is victorious, his people celebrate. When God is victorious, his people celebrate. Follow along while I read. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan and that that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at that time, at the at that time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fail to never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the son of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming these, this second letter about Purim, Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces in the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and and lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. 
So what happened after the fighting? Another party. The Jews celebrated. There was joy and gladness and sending gifts of food. And this, by the way, is is the way holidays tend to happen. There's a celebration over something, some kind of event or some kind of excess, and that celebration is remembered every year and every year, and more and more people celebrate it until the government finally says, hey, it's time to turn this into a holiday. Now, the original Thanksgiving, you might remember this from history, was celebrated in 1621. The pilgrims and the natives came together because there was much to be thankful for, even though over 50 pilgrims had died that first winter. There was much to be thankful for, and they celebrated. But it wasn't until 1777 that the first national proclamation of Thanksgiving was given by the Continental Congress. And then if you know your history, there was a lot of proclamations about Thanksgiving over the years. Now, Purim, the holiday we read about, was established much quicker, but with a similar process. At some point, perhaps right away or perhaps a few years later, Mordecai records these events and sends them out to the Jews, obligating them to keep the celebration and pass it along to their descendants. Why? To remember. Holidays are a time of celebration. They're meant to be enjoyed, yes, but more than that, They're meant to remember something. We celebrate as a way of remembering. Thanksgiving is a celebration. It's remembering what God has done for us and being thankful for it. Now, our holiday in the passage is called Purim, which is the plural form of pur, which is likely a Persian word meaning lot. You'll remember, of course, that Haman cast lots to decide which day the Jews were to meet their deaths. The Jews then, calling this holiday Purim, is appropriate because it's the final piece of irony in our story. All through Esther, irony runs thick. I think I've mentioned something ironic almost every week about the book of Esther. And we get to this point, and we see that the name of the holiday is taken from the instruments that were meant to decide the fate of the Jews but instead decided their day of vindication. We had to have one last ironic moment in the book of Esther before we closed it. Now, it's argued, and I agree, that one of the main reasons for the book of Esther is to explain this origin of Purim and why it was celebrated on two different days, depending on where you lived, so that for all generations, the Jewish people understood and the purpose behind the holiday. By the way, Israel still celebrates Purim today. 2,500 years later, they still celebrate this holiday. They still remember Mordecai and Esther. They still remember how the Jews got victory over their enemies. That's a long time to celebrate. Mordecai and Esther obligated the Jews to to hold this holiday as a way of celebrating life. And he says there, they are to hold this holiday just as they hold their fasts and lamenting. Do you see that at the end of verse 31? They are to hold this holiday as they hold their fasts and lamenting. What does that mean? Well, we don't know. But it's quite possible that what the author is trying to communicate there is that this holiday is to be celebrated. It's just as important as when we fast. 
and when we lament. You may remember that we've seen this in the book of Esther. We've seen how Mordecai, after hearing about Haman's plot, lamented and covered himself in sackcloth and ashes and fasted. So it's possible that what the author is saying here is, hey, this holiday is just as important as how we respond out of grief. Celebration is just as, was just as important as grieving, in other words. And they do this to remember how their enemies were defeated. The Jews liberated. Now it's interesting, although the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, there is no doubt that he's at work. There was no doubt that God was preserving his people. Why? Because he made a promise that the Messiah would come through the Jews. God made a promise even to Abraham that the Messiah would come through the Jews. See, we've reached the end of our cosmic chess game. And I don't know if you know this, but it's common when one player in a chess game recognizes their defeat is inevitable, sometimes they'll take their king and they'll turn it over just as a way of submitting. I doubt Satan was that courteous. He lost. Of course, we knew he would lose, but for a while there, it seemed like he had the upper hand. But God was victorious. The Jews are preserved. The plan for the Messiah coming through the Jewish people is still in play. See, when God is victorious, his people celebrate. Many of you, I'm sure, remember coming to Christ. You remember that time when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That was a day of victory. Maybe you don't remember the exact day, but you remember the time. You remember certain things that were going on. For me, it happened when I was five years old. My father met with me in a closet, and we prayed, and I accepted Christ. That's something worth celebrating. You know, every year on Easter Sunday, we remember the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. He took our sins upon himself at his death and then rose victorious over death, over sin, and over Satan. We remember that and we celebrate. Every week, we meet here at church. Why? Well, among other things, to celebrate to celebrate our faith, to celebrate our God because he's worthy of our praise. And you know what? Every day, there are victories in our lives. Every day, there is victory over sin and temptation. Every day, there is victory in ways that we stand for the gospel. Every day, there are little victories and even small victories should be celebrated. When God gives you victory throughout your day, praise him. When he gives you boldness to speak, of the gospel, when he grants you strength to resist temptation, when he sends you comfort in the time of need, praise him, thank him, celebrate him. He is worthy of our thanks. He is worthy to be celebrated simply for who he is, but he's worthy to be celebrated because of all that he's done as well. So let me ask you this question. In what ways... Can you celebrate God for who he is and for what he's done? What small ways, what everyday ways can you celebrate your creator? You know something else about this passage? This day of feasting, this day of celebration by the Jews, it points to something. It points to the ultimate day 
of celebration. My friends, a day is coming when we will celebrate the ultimate victory of the Lord. And you know how I know? Because I've read the end of the Bible. And if you don't know, God wins. God wins. And all believers will be in his presence on that day, feasting and worshiping him forevermore. Let me, let me challenge you with something. This week, take some time and just, just read the final four chapters of Revelation. Read about our celebration that's coming. Read about the ultimate victory of our Lord and let those things encourage you. You know, I've said throughout this series, there ain't no party like a Persian party. But the truth is, the party in heaven will make the Persian parties look dull and boring. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be there. When God is victorious, his people celebrate. Here's our final point. When God is victorious, his people are blessed. When God is victorious, his people are blessed. Read with me in chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full accord of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Short chapter that wraps up the book of Esther. And you might wonder, why are we reading about King Ahasuerus imposing taxes? Well, the book ends in a similar way it began. When we read chapter one, King Ahasuerus is at his peak with all of his riches and honor and glory. And you might recall that he lost a lot of that after battling the Greeks. So one possible purpose that the author has here for ending this way is to let us know that Ahasuerus went on to prosper again, even though it was through taxation. So you could look at this as bookends. Ahasuerus started strong financially and he's ending strong financially. But the emphasis as we read this chapter, the emphasis of this short chapter is on Mordecai. Mordecai is second in command, the most powerful man in the kingdom except for the king. All of this was recorded, possibly, by the way, in the same annals like those that the king had read to him when he, was, uh, was, he, was, when he couldn't sleep. Mordecai was great among the Jews whom he'd continued to advocate for. He continued to speak up for them. He continued to defend them and work for their good. Mordecai has been honored. All wrong against him has been made right. And friends, when we're victorious, or I'm sorry, when God is victorious, his people are blessed. We focused a lot of this on last week, you may remember. God redeems his people. He restores the wrong that was done, perhaps in this life, but surely in the life to come. And that is true about you, that God is at work to redeem and restore you, and you may not see that to its full until you reach heaven, but he is working to redeem you. You will be blessed. But let me say this that everyone in this room 
has in some way already been blessed. Perhaps in big ways you've been blessed. Perhaps in small ways you've been blessed. But we've all been blessed. And I want to point out that something that Mordecai does in this chapter with his blessing, he blesses others. Mordecai used his position and his power to bless his people. He didn't hoard it. He didn't focus on himself. He advocated for his people. And that's what we should do with our blessings. We use the ways God has blessed us to bless others. So let me ask, in what ways has God blessed you? In what ways has God blessed you and how can you use those to bless others? It might be material related. It might be your spiritual gifts. It might be in some way God wants you to send comfort to someone or a word of wisdom. How has God blessed you? And how can you use that to bless others? Friends, when God is victorious, his people are blessed. But you want to know something? The greatest victory our Lord ever had was at the cross. Because at the cross, he secured victory over everything. Jesus paid the price of our sin so we didn't have to. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that sin is paid for and in that is total victory. Do you want to live in total victory? What's keeping you from living in total victory? Well, could it be that you've never embraced victory in Christ? Could it be that you've never let go of trying to save yourself through your own merit? Could it be you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Friends, if that's you, today is your day. In a few moments... We'll end our service, and I'm going to call the elders and their wives forward, and I'm going to ask, if you have never embraced Christ as your Savior, come forward and talk to us. We want to explain the gospel to you. We want to pray with you. We want to show you how you can embrace Christ by faith. Fellow Christians, are you living in the victory that is yours because of the victory of Jesus Christ? You know, the reason that we can have rest, the reason that we can celebrate, the reason we can receive any blessing is because of the work that Christ did on the cross. And you might say to yourself, if I have this victory, why do I feel so defeated? Why does sin still get the better of me sometimes? Why do I feel no reason to celebrate? Quite honestly, because we are prone to forget. And I wake up in the morning, and before I even get out of bed, I've forgotten what Christ has done for me. I have to make myself remember. I am so prone to forget. It's so natural in this life to try to live it in our own strength, to try to look for other things for strength, to try to look for other things for comfort besides Christ himself. It's so easy to forget of the work that he's already done. What do we need? 
daily reminders of Christ's work? Absolutely. Some of you probably put up scripture verses to help you remember, or you do other things to help you remember of Christ's work. That's great. Keep doing that. But you know what else we need? You know what we need even deeper than that? We need to allow ourselves to marinate in the gospel. Every day we need to marinate in the gospel truth of who I am, a sinner, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, loved by Almighty God. To the degree that the gospel penetrates your heart, you will live in greater freedom. To the degree you live in Christ's victory, you will experience that amount of rest, that amount of celebration, and that amount of blessing. Friends, God is victorious. He's already won. And I want to close our study of Esther with these words of victory from Revelation chapter 21. They'll be on the screen. You can simply follow along as I read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are victorious. Thank you for doing what none of us could do. Thank you because of your victory, we have rest, celebration, and blessing. Thank you, Lord, for the time that we have spent in the book of Esther. Thank you for the truths that you have taught us from this amazing story, a story you are not even mentioned, but nonetheless, a story in which you are deeply at work. Thank you that you are also deeply at work in each of our lives. May we leave this place and live in your victory, I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.